Welcome everyone to Seat Go Create. This is your host, Tim Winders, coming to you from the passenger seat of the RV, as always. A little bit chilly where I've been down here in southern Utah and was just talking a few minutes ago. My wife and I are considering cranking up the engine and driving south, finding some warmth. And uh, I've got a great conversation today. It's going to be on redefining success have someone that had a significant event occur in their lives that really, in, in my opinion, from reading the book and everything, changed everything about, about their life and impacted thousands, if not hundreds of thousands in the process. I'll get to that in just a moment. I want to continue reminding you what a great resource we've got at SeekGoCreate.com, our website. If you go there, anything we mention today, any book, any video, any other reference, the people on our team will take that, put a link in, put it in outline form, all of our conversations and discussions, put a timestamp on it. You can go and use all that our, all that we discuss and, and go to that website and get it as a great resource. So make sure you visit SeekGoCreate.com. Make sure we've got your most, most valuable thing. You've got your email address so that we can stay in contact and keep you updated. So I'm glad you're here listening in at SeekGoCreate. Let's go ahead and jump into this podcast because this this is a conversation that I'm super excited about. Today, I've got Joe Caruso as our guest. He's an executive advisor speaker, and author. But listen to this. He made the decision to redefine success at 18 years old when he was diagnosed with incurable cancer. That, listen to this, was 45 years ago, 1978. Today, uh, we're going to discuss how his attitude and actions around that event redefined his life. Joe, welcome to Seek, Go Create. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate being here and Boy, you set the high bar here. So I hope I'm I'm lucid. Guy, I didn't have my Kesslers and cornflakes this morning. Well, I am sure. I am sure we're going to have a great conversation. And you know, it's interesting when we when I have these interviews, I, I usually grab the book, I listen to a few things, do a little bit of research, and uh, I feel like you and I have spent some time together because I've been reading your book and. And we'll get we'll get to that in just a moment. But um, but anyway, I, I we're gonna have fun. We're gonna have fun here. First question though, before we dive in, I gave an abbreviated bio for you, and uh, and what I like to do is almost treat this as a conversation, as if we bump into each other somewhere. And if I ask you, Joe, what do you do? Or someone asks you that question, what do you typically tell people? I live my life to the best of my ability to help myself and other people and enjoy it. So yeah. I'm, I, I've been studying for five hours a day, five days a week since diagnosis when I was 18. And just so your listeners and viewers aren't nervous, um, I lived. Uh, so we'll get through this interview fine. Um, my... <laughs> I decided to commit to what is the mind capable of? Hmm. And so when I studied five hours a day, five days a week, and I've kept my stupid promise, um, and I just turned 63, um, I study for myself. And then I bring that knowledge to how does that apply to how a leader can learn about their mind and how can a leader influence and be a great contextualizer for a collective mind that they lead mm. uh, to be more effective at that? Leading isn't managing. If you're managing, you're doing two jobs and you're not doing one well. And leading isn't managing. So leading is understanding how people think individually and collectively getting them to understand through your concise understanding of where you want things to go. And what I'd like to talk about concision later. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got that down with uh, seek, go create. That's about as concise as you can freaking get. And that's good. Um, and then have them compelled to want to bring their best mind, creativity, 
um, and efficacy to their work. Hmm. So I, that's what I do. Yeah, I, I love you gave a real short, concise to begin, and then and then I love that you continued expanding on it. There were a few things that kind of triggered in my mind when I was listening to that, and I want to jump want to jump back to one of the first things, and that was you studied for yourself instead of, and this is kind of the contrast. I see a lot of people that are information gatherers, studiers, things like that that they are doing it. And I've done this, I think at times in my own life, I've studied something so that I could teach it, share it, profit from it, whatever. But you pretty, pretty boldly said you studied for yourself. What, why do you think that's a difference? Give, give, give a difference on what that attitude uh, contrast is. Let me contextualize it this way. I hated book reports in school. Why would I do it now for a choice? <laughs> yeah, well, why would you need to do that? Now AI can do it for you, right? <laughs> well, what I try to do is learn about myself so I can bring a better self to the game. Um, that's what a professional does. I don't want to read other people's work. I'm not an aggregator. Mm. I'm a writer. I don't read self-help books because I don't want any of that stuff appearing in one of my books accidentally to be then called, you know, someone who just crips other people's stuff. No, it, that's, that's, that, that's a good game for some people. It doesn't pay very well for the most part. And I don't want to take a pay cut too. <laughs> you do it doing pretty well up there on, on, on your island in Michigan, huh? <laughs> yeah, pretty pretty well. Not so as well as the deer that eat all the foliage, but yeah. I'm in an RV in southern Utah and you're on an island up in Michigan. I'm not I'm not sure who's in a different or better position, but we obviously are both a little bit different than the masses, it seems like. I think that's a, a very uh, a very good thing to say. Everybody's shouting how unique they are because of their reactionism to something uh, or reactivism to something. We're all the same uh, in terms of, of there's a lifespan. Uh, we bleed red. Nobody bleeds purple. Um, if my elbow hurts, I go to an elbow doctor and he doesn't say, geez, I've never seen one of these before. Uh, we have a lot of commonality in our humanness. But in our minds, we have a unique experience. You're the only person that when you look at your, through your eyes, you don't see the color. Hmm. All the rest of us see the color of your eyes. You can't see uh, how you define things. You know, I just talked about a deer and I mentioned this in my new book. A deer to a hunter is meat or a prey. A deer to a gardener, like my wife, is an expensive pest. And if you live in Michigan and you drive at night, a deer is the most dangerous animal you will count where people die driving cars, hitting deer, than being eaten by coyotes. So it's still a deer in and of itself. But your life experience creates how you define everything in the world. You know, you're in an RV and you had millions of dollars worth of real estate value and decided, for whatever reason, it's nobody's business or yours, to say, I've, I wasn't living probably, uh, I don't want to go back there. I, I don't want to do that. So you went the RV route, which is one of the many routes you could have gone. And it's working for you. And people that don't do that don't get it. You know, I live in Italy for six weeks a year. People go, 
How can you be gone that long? Be where you are. Yeah, be where it, you are and be who you are. Know who you are and where you are. We enter each age of life as a novice. Your beard wasn't always tinted with that nice salt and pepper color, but it is now. And that's what seek, go and create. You first have to seek out who am I today? What are my options today? Am I going to do my task list from yesterday? Is that my goal? Or is my goal to find out who I am today and see what else I'm capable of? Those are questions we have to ask constantly. And most people don't want to look inside because it's the scariest place they'll ever see. Sure. Joe, one thing I'd love to do, because I, I, I think there's so much value that you can bring to someone listening in that's asking those questions and needing to ask those questions. But I do want to go back to 1978. I get, was that the year? Did I read that? Do I remember that correctly? You were in college and, and incurable cancer. I don't, I don't even know if I'm not belittling it. I don't know if I want to go into the details of the medical situation. But yeah, let me uh, let me share that. Share that quickly because there's some questions I've got that you just brought up that I want to go back to where you were at that time, and then I want to okay. I want to tell you what was nagging at me the whole time I was reading the book. So I can't wait. Ahead. Okay, <laughs> all right. So for for your audience, it hasn't read. Thank uh, you. That's you're referring to the power of losing control. My uh, yes. last book, which is a bestseller in six or seven languages, he unashamedly proclaims because when I wrote it, I didn't think anybody was going to read it. I didn't even know if there's going to be a book it's sitting right here typing. Um, 1978, four scholarships. I could do an iron cross on the rings. I was in great physical condition. My left testicle swelled up, end up in a hospital. They take the testicle. Um, uh, and so, as my pen says, I'm a uniballer. Um, <laughs> I looked at that one day and I just went, "Oh, that's real. That's God. You got a great sense of humor." So you've got is, uh, so so you've got a branded. You've been branded. Is that what the <laughs> apparently without my permission? Uh, <laughs> so. End up four surgeries, five surgeries later, experimental chemotherapy. They said, if you don't die from the cancer, we're going to kill you because that's how we learn. And uh, they almost did. Um, it was close for a couple years, but I was told, just plan on dying. And then I asked myself, well, why live if you're going to die? I said, oh, I want to know. I want to know potential. I'm going to miss what other people find. Well, I assumed other people found it. They don't. Not most of the time. They don't know how to look. They don't know what questions to ask. And they don't want to see, which, or seek, will, to use a word that somehow is in my head right now. And the uh, I end up cured and I end up keeping my promise to study five hours a day, five days a week and didn't know I'd write a book that would become a bestseller, bestselling audio book, award-winning audio book as well. I didn't know I would end up touching millions and millions of lives. I didn't know I'd save lives. I didn't know that people that were considering suicide would send me notes or call me or uh, I, 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 I didn't have any of this in mind. I didn't know people would pay me tens of thousands of dollars to speak to 10,000 people at a time. Never crossed my mind. I just wanted to write down what I had been studying. And uh, for me, just to be more concise, there's that word again, 
because when you write things, you're forced to put them into the cages of words that contain the idea. You're not, you know, when we think it's not linear, we think it's linear. It's not. Uh, so that's why, that's where I was in 78. And that's uh, what got me here to this today. So I can't wait to hear what was lingering in your mind or niggling at your mind while you were reading that. So here's here's my thinking, and these are th this falls under the hypothetical questions that probably have no answer, but they're fun to think about, and and meditate on. And that is, in 1978, there was obviously a what I like to call a catalytic event, an, an event that occurred in your life that changed the course of your life. I believe. Would you agree with that? I mean, is that sort of hundred percent? Yeah, yeah, because it's it's part of the story. I. Part of my story is the downfall in 2008. The businesses we had were gone a few years later. And so, you know, it forced some things on me. And I, and I do believe that significant change occurs with most people on the brink of something like that. And so, so the thing that was nagging at me, not nagging, that might not be the right word. I'm just curious. I'm actually more than curious is if you ever put some thought into what would Joe be like? What would have your life oh, absolutely. been like? Absolutely. Had it, had it not been for that event, and I know it's totally fictional. However, give me some thoughts, because you've, you've obviously, you're a deep thinker. What, what have your thoughts been like? You know, cancer, horrible. Chemotherapy, horrible. Bad stuff. There's nothing good about that except who you are today, which is pretty powerful. Well, they gave me uh, more than twice the dosage that they thought a human could handle because they had to find out what's the highest level dosage a human can handle. So when I said I could do an Iron Cross uh, in gymnastics class, that's one of the things that got me through. I believe in God, so I believe that that had a major impact as well. I was cocky. I was cute. I was smart. I was talented. I was voted most likely to exceed and most talented in my high school class, which had 680 people in it. I wasn't arrogant. I was confident at the highest level. And I got humbled. So that's one of the gifts that I, I received was humility. And, and Tim, I'd like to share with you and your audience, we don't pride ourselves to our lessons. We humble ourselves to our lessons. And so if that's the key and it's true, which it is, we can extrapolate or logically move to the next step that humility may be the key to learning. And you got humbled in your business. I got humbled with my health in my life. And someone last week in an interview, I do about three, four or five of these a week. Um, I guess I, I'm, all, I'm always fascinated by the questions that someone's going to ask me because the ones that I accept to do never give me too much of a heads up of what they're going to ask me. It's not as much fun, you know, cause it's, we want this exchange. And I think that's what people would like to see too. So last week it was a Thursday and uh, they said, Joe, does somebody have to have a cataclysmic event to have to, to be able to have the kind of transition that you had. It wasn't a shocking question. I've been asked the question many times, but the answer is, and I'll leave out the F word on this, absolutely not because 
too many people have been so successful and made major changes in their life without a cataclysmic event that odds just look at the numbers no reality has proven no you have a story to tell i have a story to tell would i be the same person to get to the end of your question no i think i'd be much taller and i wouldn't be going bald for the third damn time <laughs> but i am going bald for the third time this is the last one by the way tim third time's a charm and But I wouldn't have learned the level of humility, the hunger and curiosity I always had. Always, since I was a little kid. I, I, I was always the one that asked why 17 times until the parent went, shut up, go play with something. So the answer is, who would I be? It's complete conjecture. I wouldn't be as smart. I wouldn't be, I probably wouldn't have done so much self-exploration with such intention. Mm. I would have done it, but not with the level of the compelling intention that I have today. I'm one of the most, people say, I hear it all the time and it's very nice no, you're so smart and you're a deep thinker, as you said earlier, and, you know, this conversation and it's all, I'm honored. I'm honored by it. But I'm a great teacher. I'm a better student. And I want that ratio to stay the same. Never change. But in all likelihood, shouldn't that statement go together? We do have a lot of, I don't even know if we should call them teachers. Let's just, let's just look out over the horizon and see what we see out there. We have a lot of speakers. We have a lot of people saying stuff. <laughs> but do we it's have great teachers? It's a cacophony. It's a cacophony of advice here in America. <laughs> I've got, there's some, there's a highlight that I've got from your book, Power of Losing Control. And if, if we get to it, I believe we will, I'm going to ask you later about how it relates to what we see in today's social media world. I'll get to that. I'm, I, this is, this is me baiting you and the audience to say, we'll get to that in just a moment, because I think it's going to be powerful to talk about You're it. You're teasing me. I am. But, but, I, but I've got to ask this first, because you brought up the word humility. And we were having this discussion about significant change in people's lives. And is it, is it from a catalytic or cataclysmic, however, whatever the word, a big event? Or is it from someone making a decision and deciding to make a change? And to me, that word humility is what makes that <laughs> distinction. What are your thoughts? <laughs> That's why I love these conversations. Uh, I, I get to have these, by the way, my clients call once a week for one hour a week and we talk about anything. That's the entire syllabus. And um, it's a back and forth like this. It's called free association in the psychoanalytic framework. Um, so what did I think of when you asked me that question? There was an artist named Ricky Lee Jones. She had a best-selling hit in 1978. Chuck e. Chuck E's in love. <laughs> she saw him down at the Parentages, if I remember the line. And uh, I do remember the line because I didn't know what the hell a Parentages was and had to look it up. A pop song taught me a word. How good is that? And um, in that same album, she writes um, another song. It didn't never made the radio. Album was produced by Phil Ramone, by the way, who also produced "The Stranger" by Billy Joel. Uh, I have more useless information. If you ever need useless information, I'll be your lifeline. So, in that line, she writes a song. 
And she says, you never know when you're making a memory. It's a throwaway line in the middle of the song. It's not a title, it's just in the middle of the song. So to uh, a mall, a shopping mall, we have a lot of those in America that are now abandoned for those in your 25 other countries. And I do listen a little bit, but um, I see a young lady coming across the parking lot from the Ritz Carlton and two guys, and they're gonna go into the mall. And I recognize her, her name was Susanna Hoffs. She was the lead singer of the Bangles, an 80s band, Walk Like an Egyptian. And I said, hey, how you guys doing? She says, great, how are you? I said, great, thanks for your music, really love it. What are you doing in town? She goes, oh, we have a concert. I said, cool. Um, she said, is this mall any good? I said, there's a couple good stores. I'll take you in and, uh, and show you kind of around a little bit and then you're on your own. And they loved the fact that I could just talk to them. So we had a nice conversation. Just as Susanna leaves with her two bandmates, a guy comes up to me and I'm in the men's underwear department. Okay. I'll go with it. Hi. He goes, how are you? A little more enthusiastically than I would have preferred. And I said, great. How are you? And he says, good. He goes, you played in a band. I said, yes, I'm a recovering musician. My name is Joe. And he laughed. He says, you played my wedding 20 years ago because we started playing weddings at, I was 15. We couldn't drive. My uncle drove the van, dropped us off, picked us up at the end of the night and got our equipment. Four brothers. And I said, oh, are you still married? He said, yes. I said, good band. And he laughed. He said, I saw you speak just a couple of years ago and you said, you never know when you're making a memory. He said, but that's not what I really remember. What you made me think of with your words was different. He didn't tell me and he left. His wife called him, so he, he, he was an abrupt goodbye. So my answer to your question is you never know when you're making someone else's memory. Keep that in mind. So, all right. So the, the, the next thing that's intriguing to me and you brought it up at the beginning also was this rhythm that you began, which is, we'll say studying for five hours a day. Sure. But a few minutes ago, you also said that you don't necessarily read self-help books. So no. when one studies five hours a day and, and you kind of inferred that you're still doing that, is that correct? You still a studier? There's many ways to study books is yeah. one. Right. 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 So that, that's what, that was my question is, is let's go backwards. What did that study look like then? And then contrast or, or bring it up to current. What is five hours of study look like today and here's the reason i bring it up this is a little bit of my my maybe cynicism or sarcasm there's a lot of junk out there that one could be quote unquote air quotes studying reading and all of that and the news and stuff you know and but so what does one put into their mind to make sure it's fertile it's good it's nourishing for five hours a day so there, there's a lot to that. I'll, I'll just give that to you and let you respond. It's a lot of fertile ground. I'm going to see if this works. I'm not sure it's going to. Let me see if I can move this screen a little bit. Yeah. Okay. To the bookshelf. To the bookshelf for the one that's listening in. I saw okay, a, big, so, a big glimpse of it there. Yes. Yeah, there's, there's eight or nine or ten of them in the house. But I'll share something with you. I've only done one time in a video. I'm going to disappear for one second. 
Absolutely. So while he's doing that, I'll walk the audience through. He is getting out of his leather chair, going over to the bookshelf. So, uh, so I've, I've provoked him with, uh, with a question that forced him to get up and move. Thank you for my daily exercise. <laughs> you, you got about 10 or 20 steps in right there, right? <laughs> exactly. And I, I could pinpoint almost where I have this mind that is, uh, amazing i could i've worked with some clients for 20 years and i could tell you our first conversation and and they like that because it means i cared enough to remember hmm. and that's important yeah i don't remember what i do I, I don't what's the neighbor three uh, houses down i don't live in a neighborhood it's a island but what's it i have no idea carol my wife would say well you met them interesting i guess i don't know but the first book i read and my commitment is in my home it's called mm -hmm. the story of philosophy by will durant one of the most famous uh philosopher and historians uh in modern times i have a signed book from him from 1924 collector book. But in this, he goes through from Aristotle to Schopenhauer. He goes through all the great thinkers of the Western world. And I picked this book, which you could tell is a little bit worn, be because I wanted to learn not just how to think. I wanted to learn the simple, common, timeless human truths, five words concision. I wanted to learn not just what one person thinks. Uh, Descartes, I think, therefore I am. I wanted to learn how one thought can get expanded and augmented over time as other minds meet the idea. And I learned more about myself in this little book at that point in my life than I'd ever learned. And I got addicted. And I know addiction is a bad word, but if you're, if it's a good habit, it's a good habit. If it's a bad habit, it's a bad habit. And studying is a good habit. And I'd rather, uh, Look, I love a good party. I love to cook. I love throwing dinner parties. I'm really good. I've cooked with James Beard award-winning chefs in my own home. I'm not kidding. I'm, I can cook. I'm pretty good at music. I'm a great student. So the cacophony that's out there needs to have a filter, which is contextual. By what context do you view something? Now, to quote Will Durant, being that we're on the subject, and you started it, is that there's a difference between a cynic and a skeptic. And I read this in 79. There's that mind again. Or I just made it up and tell myself I'm right, which yeah, is narcissistic. And I can't argue with you. So it's like, yeah, okay. Wow. Yeah. He's razor Prove sharp. Me wrong. <laughs> Prove me razor. wrong, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's, it's, uh, I'm not going to paraphrase. I'm going to try and quote it. Hmm. Um, a skeptic is one who considers both sides. A cynic can stand neither the disease nor the cure. Skepticism is healthy. It's an examination. It's a weight. It's a, it's, let me think, maybe this, maybe that. I think a new idea to a skeptic is like mashed potatoes on Thanksgiving here in America. Best served hot, scalding hot, and everybody loves them. 
butter, mashed potato. Who doesn't love mashed potatoes? Get out of here. And so you put the fork in the mashed potatoes and you put it in your mouth as a kid. And then you realize your mouth is not built to hold that level of heat. And neither is your throat. So we find this magic place in our mouth to hover the mashed potatoes while we breathe around them somehow. It's all biologically impossible, but we figure it out in the moment of emergency. And, uh, and then we swallow the mashed potatoes. I think a skeptic does that with a new idea. Just hold it. Just hold it in your mind. Let it cool off. Let your emotion about the idea cool off. Don't discard it. Don't swallow it. Hold it. That's the power of metaphor. All leaders need to know the power of metaphor. It's a stupid metaphor, but it freaking works. So the reason the reason I love you just brought that up, we're, we're kind of flowing and tracking together here, is I was just sitting here telling myself what a great storyteller you are and how much power there is in story, which is a sibling of metaphor. We could put them in the same category. But have have you always been one who would be a storyteller or is that something you've developed over time with the more study that you've done? Because I also think, like you mentioned, metaphor. I think sometimes being a good storyteller is connecting the dots. It's being able to apply things in the right situation with the right leader, the right audience, the right people. Whereas some people tell stories and you go, I don't know where this came from. Have, has that always been something you had years back or has that just been developed over the years with, I love this word for people of our age bracket, with maturity? Am not. Um, well, you notice I didn't say we're old dudes. I said we're mature. I'm 59. You said you're 63. So, so we could yeah. go hang out and go play pickleball or something together, maybe for for 10 minutes, and then my back goes out. I need water. I need a cigarette, martini, something. Uh, no, that's, that's called our priorities are in order. To, you know, it's not about the pickleball. It's about the socialization, right? Great question, and I'm the deep thinker. Okay, here we go. Yeah, let's go. Um, I'll start with the genesis. I'll end with a story. That should be a complete answer. That will be acceptable. We will, we will accept that as an answer. Thank you. <laughs> I hope I just win the contest. Um, <laughs> We would go to my uh, my mom's family's house and they'd invite friends over. My father's name was Mickey. You'll see the story. The last story in the book is about Mickey. Um, it's quite moving. Uh, he was my best friend, my mentor, my teacher, great trumpet player, great guy. Worked at Ford Motor Company, blue collar, and then went white collar. Um, just a good man, but very fortunate because you don't get to pick your parents. And uh, well, metaphorically you can, but not biologically. And uh, we'd go over to visit and we'd all eat everything. Everything revolved around potato salad and whatever else we could jello some kind of inedible meatloaf that, you know, nobody was rich. And at the end of the day, my cousins would take me in and we watch this fuzzy black and white TV and I get bored uh, because hockey was on and I couldn't see the puck because the TV was just too crappy. You put foil around the antenna. I don't think that worked. So I would go in the kitchen where the adults were and everyone would be around my father and he would be telling stories or jokes and everyone loved him. And I thought, that's cool. 
So it's cool. You know, I had braces and a brush cut. I was not cool by definition to everyone who had a voice in school. Uh, I wasn't cool till high school. And even then, I'm, I, I think it was just a snow job, kind of like the TV. But so I listened. And one night I was laying in bed reflecting 30, 40 years ago, 40 years ago. And uh, <laughs> there's a time, Tim, I never thought I'd say 40 years ago with such cavalier uh, attitude, but apparently I can. It seems like just uh, yesterday. It was just yesterday, 40 years ago. It, yeah, yeah. I can't <laughs> remember what I had for lunch. But I was laying there and I thought, I've got five mentors in my life. I, I contextualized who these people, why they were important. And I decided they're what I call in my new book, great contextualizers. We think in story, you're right on the money. And I'm, this is in my new book as well. We can't understand one thing in a vacuum in our mind. We have to say compared to what? Different from what? By how much? And when you put enough things together, you created a story. The story is the connection between the dots. My new book coming out in the spring, shameless plug, everyone needs to read it. It'll change your life. Is called Narrative Wins. Narrative Wins because we're the stories we tell ourselves we are. Now, the easiest and biggest lies we tell are to ourselves about ourselves. That shit you got to cut through, and that's a whole different thing. That's studying. That's introspection. But we are the stories we tell ourselves we are. And that determines what we like or don't like, decide is good or bad, long before we hold the mashed potatoes of an idea hovering in our mouth. Mm. And that's the birth of cynicism. Oh, one more thing. Sure. If I can. A narrative doesn't have to be long. So I want to get to concision because I've been teasing that. The old story about Hemingway. He's trying to teach a writer to be more concise, a sports writer, because that's what Hemingway's background was in. He covered the bullfights in Spain. And he learned concision, either because his mom made him take violin lessons or because he had to pay per word for the reporting that goes back to the United States about the bullfight um, or both or more. But he was a very concise writer. And I recently went through a study group with a bunch of psychoanalysts. And we had to read, they said, uh, Old Man in the Sea. I said, geez, I lived through that once, man. It's brilliant. It's like Aristotle's poetics. He got smarter since I was 20 years old, <laughs> somehow magically. So, Concision, he teaches his kid. He, he says, pick a number between one and 10. Kid says six. He says, okay. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. <laughs> six words. Six words. That's a, that's a story. Now it was done later. I was a couple of years ago in Vegas. I go there to eat because my friends are chefs, many of them. Um, you don't have to be a chef to be my friend, by the way. That's just coincidental. And my buddy wants to go and his wife, they want to go to Caesar's Palace. I said, it's about 20 years past dynamite Vegas time, but we'll go. So we go. And by the... Uh, I don't know what they call it, the forum or whatever, where all the boxing matches in the 70s, Muhammad Ali and those guys 
took place. And there's a large African black man sitting behind American African, African American, sitting behind a table signing photos of himself. My buddy's not into sports and I'm definitely not into sports. I decided a long time, time ago, I wouldn't sit on my big ass on the couch watching other people excel. Not gonna happen. So I, I, but I have a proximity rule. I'm this far, he's 20 feet away. That's chump change, let's go. So I go meet him. They stayed a, a little bit away, but my buddy was, he knows me. He's curious what I'm gonna do. I look down and there's a picture and Muhammad Ali's kind of dazed in his corner. And this guy's walking back to his corner because he's, you know, they had to check out Ali. Ali said this guy hit him so hard, his family in Africa hurt. And that, that only Ali could get away with that. And I said, hello, my name is Joe. And I stuck my hand out and my hand disappeared. I can only see my wrist. This guy's built to fight. He's a minister today. He said, my name is Ernie Shavers. I said, well, Mr. Shavers, I'm going to buy two eight by tens, please. But I have three questions. Do you mind? He says, no, we have time. What are your questions? About the fight? I said, I don't know anything about boxing. I don't even know who you are. I apologize. I'll go home and I'll YouTube the fight, which I did. I said, three questions about that night. You show up here. And you're the unknown. You're the contender. They, inter they introduce you first. Muhammad Ali is the most well-known sportsman of his time worldwide. Nobody more famous in sports. I said, you enter the ring. What was the first thing you thought of? That's question one. He said, my benefactors, they were all in the front row. I didn't want to disappoint them. Wouldn't have thought of that. I said, okay, number two, it says here, on, there's a document that was right on the table, really big letters, I could read it. And it said, you have on record the, large, the most powerful left hand in boxing history. Did you hit him with your left? He goes, yeah. I said, are you one of the few people, how many people knocked him down? He goes, two or three. It's okay. What round? He says, two. There's 12 rounds in boxing for people that don't follow it. I learned that. I said, so this picture has you hacking, walking back to your corner while they're asking him if he knows his name because you rung his bell. Then he gets up and you, they resume the fight, which goes the full 12 rounds, by the way. And I said, He's a talker. He can't help himself. He creates stories, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. He creates concise stories that stick in people's minds. I'm pretty, I'm so pretty. That's taunting for a boxer to say that to somebody who's gonna punch him in the face. That was well thought out, no accident. I said, so he had to have said something to you when you touch gloves again. What'd he say? He says, no one ever asked me that, but you're absolutely right. He couldn't wait to say it. He said two words, I'll never forget them. I said, what were they? Not tonight. In two words, talk about concision. He created a narrative. He didn't say to Ernie, good luck doing that again. He didn't say that didn't hurt. He didn't tell him something that wasn't true. He just said, okay, you could probably kick my butt someday, but not tonight. 12 round fight, buddy. Not tonight. And Ali won by a decision. Hmm. That's the power of story. Narrative wins. And quintessential leaders tell the right story to the right person at the right time and the right way for the right reason. Mm. That, that and you thing, have to be empathic to be able to do that. You can't just do it out of ego. 
so a few things. Number one, pretty pretty powerful story. I've, I, the thing that came to mind was, I think the quote might have been attributed to Tyson is something like, uh, you know, something doesn't start till somebody gets punched in the nose or you, you find out who people are when they get punched in the nose. I think we found out that was interesting with that story. Yeah, something like, yeah, yeah, the character, yeah. The character of Ali, we find that out and he, he could have limped back to the, to the, to the corner, but it, we kind of saw the character kind of rise up there. Joe, I, the question I've gotten, obviously you're writing about this, so people need to get the book and, and, but I was thinking about in the kitchen with your father storytelling. And my guess is, is the years that you were talking about would be probably the early seventies that that would have been occurring if I'm guessing correctly, or maybe late. Yeah, 60s. I would think that's right. Yeah. And I want to fast forward 40 years. We're going to say 40 plus years. And I want to ask, are, are we, are we, do we have a net gain of people that have that skill and ability today? Or do we have a net deficit or is it the same? And then my last follow-up to that piece is how can people learn that? If, if it's, because I also thought, you know, talking about concision, I thought of 140 characters on Twitter. I'm thinking about what, what we see on social media, which to me is not necessarily storytelling. <laughs> to me, it's just information dumping and many times it's arguing. But w where are we at? Are we doing good? I know you work with people. Are we doing poorly as a culture society? And how does one get better if they're not good at it? We're not reading as much, so we don't understand story because we're not experiencing story. Uh, o. Henry was one of the best short story writers in the country, and most people under 40 doesn't, don't know who he, who he was. Um, we're not giving, giving the why behind the what. I'm trying to put my finger on who said it. I don't think it was Bertrand Russell, um, but my Rolodex has a glitch in it right now in my head. Uh, that's for all the older people out there, that reference. Um, we'll put something down in the notes to explain what a Rolodex is. Yeah, yeah, that's probably a good idea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's something people put a lot of blank cards into to make them look important. Look, I know all these people. It's, it's pre-Facebook. That's all it is. Um, the fastest way to unite an uncommon people is a common hatred. And so we'd rather cast a shadow, which comes from an old black and white movie, by the way, um, whatever that term is that they're using now and tick tock paddywhack give the dog a bone um that we'd rather show somebody they call it virtue signaling today um how good we are based on how bad somebody else is kids in seventh grade that made fun of me didn't do it because they didn't like me they did it because they wanted to look cool. And the only way they could look cool was by pointing out something that wasn't cool. Therefore, I'm not. You know, as Descartes, I think, therefore, I am. You ain't. So, therefore, I could be. And, and we're stuck in that. So, that's the first part of your question. How do we get better at it, I believe, was your second part. Or I just re-remembered that in my mind from some dream I had last night, um, which is possible. Learning about your mind, if we think in story, which we do, and we are the stories we tell ourselves we are, then the more you learn about your mind, the more you understand how you contextualize things. You see things in the context of a story. I'm a hunter, that's venison. There's a story there, but who's it based on? You. Every story you have is based on you. Every meaning you create, based on you. So the more you learn about yourself, the more you could do that. I'll tell you one more quick story about my dad. We're in a band, we're about to go on the road, first time, extended road trip, rock and roll. 
early 80s. Elvis Costello, Beatles, that kind of stuff. And my dad was a great trumpet player, I told you. He's quite famous. And he's got his uh, T-shirt on and he's washing dishes after dinner. He says, so you guys are going on the road, huh? Said, yeah, you got your brothers around? Yeah, he said, go get them. So the four of us hang out. We're proud and loud, you know, but we respect this man. And uh, he says, going on the road? My little brother says, yeah, we got our sign. It says Caruso on it. My dad says, oh, really? Caruso? He said, yeah, that's the name of the band. He goes, oh, that's good. He said, that's, that's uh, the name of the band. That's your band. Yeah. And, and, and then that's your name. Well, that's, that's smart. My dad says, you know, that's my name. But it's not my name. We just looked at each other, like, where the hell are we going? Yeah. He said, that was your grandmother or your grandfather's name. And they gave it to me. And I gave it to you. And now you're going to go on the road with that name and a sign behind you. Keep in mind, that name was screwed up the entire road trip. That's storytelling. Yes. That's the great contextualizer at work. So how do we learn to do it? Yeah, how do we learn? Yeah, the leader, the leader that's going, you know what, I'm about the facts, I'm about tactics, I'm about strategy. All is effective. That goes back to the manager that you mentioned earlier. You know, they could do this, they could do the techniques and all that, but they can't with the story. Is it is it just the, that reading? Is it that study? Is it humility? Is it all of that? It's all of that. Uh, I have to understand why I tell myself, this, myself the stories I tell myself, and I have to know that they're, some of them are true. Not all of them. Well, they're stories. Stories they're just stories. facts. That doesn't say they're facts. No. And sometimes no, they, our memories can they, skew them a little bit. You know, there, there's a little bit of slight fuzziness and there's a reason to tell or embellish or emphasize certain aspects of the story over others to contextualize and bring it to the person that you're interacting with, correct? 100%. Apple, early days. Our job, beat out Microsoft, be the platform. And then after... Steve Jobs figured it out. He goes, screw Apple. Let them do whatever they're going to do. Let's disrupt something. Change business. Wouldn't have Tesla today if it wasn't for that. That kind of thinking. Stop competing against other people and find out what you do best and do it better than anybody else. Don't sell it better than anybody else. Don't market it better than anybody else. You have to do those. Do it better. And when you do, you get that nod that you just gave me. Because it, it, it made sense. Not tonight. Made sense. It was real. Same. And so understanding that that's part of the game it's the biggest part of the game for a leader. Narrative wins. Study it. Study how to use metaphor and story. Because that's how we think. So you got to talk to the mind in the language the mind understands. You just can't have a bunch of disjointed facts and ideas. They've got to connect for a story. And this means this. And here's why. And... Here's where you are in this. And this is why you're as important as this. So, and you won't have to manage anyone. One thing that's interesting, and this is, I'm getting close to my final questions here because our time's getting tight. In The Power of Losing Control, you covered something that I really loved. I highlighted the four rules of engagement. And one <laughs> thing that I really believed as I was reading through this, and I think it ties into the power of storytelling and, and concision and all of these things, is that some people try to entertain 
and then other people inspire, encourage, uplift. And I think you really have to understand things like the rules of engagement and other people to really be able to use your story to inspire. Because, I mean, we, I, we could probably, you and I could probably get together and tell stories all day long that may or may not relate to what's going on. But I think you understand. I mean, is it true that the four rules of engagement, they seem to be sort of foundational to a lot of what you do. And I loved how you brought that into this power of losing control. Talk just a, just briefly about that. And I do have a final question or two before we wrap up. So maybe that'll tie a few things together for us here. All right. I won't tell a long story. I'll, I'll take your time, Q. Um, the four rules of engagement for your audience you may not have read the book. What's wrong with them? I mean, they should have, but it's okay. They will after this. After this, they You're will not taking it personal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Everyone is always right. Our greatest desire is to be right, not happy. Right. You can't change anyone's mind. You can only help them shift their perspective. You do that through context. And then they change their mind. If you're trying to change their mind, you skipped rule number one and rule number two. These are sequential. I tested that rule everywhere from China and Asia to the Middle East, to Saudi Arabia, uh, not been to Russia, um, not been to South America. Um, but in every other country I've been in, which there's a lot of them, to study the cultural, the collective mind. And it's true in every language and every culture. It's true in politics today. To not understand that means that you don't know how to tell the right story to the right person at the right time in the right way for the right reason. You're just telling a damn story. So that's my short answer. Mm. Very good. So, so if someone's listening in, they're a leader, a person, I think we may have pressed on some buttons for someone who may be in a role that they lead. Joe, what's uh, and they're wanting to maybe redefine success, what it means, kind of our theme here, and and maybe not wait for some catalytic event. Um, and, and we're going to let them know where to find your books and all here right after this and this next question. Other than just do that, get some of that. What are, what's a tip or two that you could give them that'll help them along that process so that uh, they can begin redefining success for themselves? I try to keep the funnel as open at the top as I can. Um, so on my website are a number of blogs, free. On my website are videos, free. Um, if people think they want to talk to me and they qualify, which means they have a budget because I don't work for free, um, and I don't let other people set my fee. This is a certain way to go out of business. They can contact the office, which is Caruso, C-A-R-U-S-O, leadership, one word, carusoleadership.com. And I'll give them an hour to learn about them. And then they could decide, and I can decide if we're going to work together had a couple decide they wanted me to work with them. So I met them at a local restaurant. And at the end of the restaurant, conversation was over. Everybody was fun and satiated and it was time to go. And they didn't know how to end the meeting. And I said, you both passed the audition. I said, this is a mutual audition. You didn't know that. I want to help people that can't help themselves. I won't try. That's one of the reasons I've never failed. I pre-qualify. Hmm. Very good. So, so people find you Caruso leadership. Is that where you want them to go to connect with you and get all your info and yep. books and things? Good. And if they want to contact us, it's team at Caruso leadership. Cool. And I, uh, the power of losing control will include links. When does narrative wins come out? I believe we're shooting for um, end of 
probably the beginning of May, but that means it's going to be the end of May. Good. Just it's like construction. Good. So people listening in on this episode, I believe it will be releasing before that. They'll be keeping a lookout for that. Hey, Joe, we are seek, go, create here. Those three words, very concise about who we are. I'm going to let you pick one of those words that resonates with you more than the other two or just is gelling or you want to tell a story about it or something. Got to, going to pick one. Last question, seek, go, or create. Which one? And why? We'll tie it in. We'll tie it into what I think summarizes a lot of this brilliant conversation, which I really enjoyed. Thank you. You're good at what you do. And thanks for sharing it with people. I know you're doing it for your mind, but you're sharing it. And that's a gift. And um, it's not easy to do. There's work involved. So I appreciate you doing that, Tim. Seek. From the person who's studied five hours a day for now, 40 plus, plus, plus years. <laughs> yeah, seek, yeah, yeah. But seek here. Then you can see there. Very good. Joe Caruso, thank you for this conversation. I've enjoyed it. You and I could probably get together and tell stories and chat for a long period of time. If you've listened in on this, make sure you go and grab his books. Keep a lookout for his new book and uh, find things he's doing. I, I think if we discuss redefining success, which we do here for leaders, business owners, people in positions like that, this has been a fantastic conversation that has nudged people, if not forced people to think more about that. We have new episodes every Monday. Make sure you are subscribed and following and all that kind of stuff. Until next time, continue being all that you were created to be. 